Welcome to the Saturday Frights Podcast. I am the projectionist, your co-host for this radio program. Now, come join your host, Vic Sage, as we enter the vault to once again discuss retro horror films and television programs. <laughs> It is coming, the final phase of an accident of nature. Nothing human can have this in its millions of It is unexplainable. There, there, old girl. Everything seems to be in order this evening. Yes, we all must pay our dues. But not this evening. Not on a glorious night such as this. The haunted drive-in is full of satisfied patrons, and the agreements of old are... Hey there, projectionist. Sorry it took so long to get back. Can't believe I'm actually going to say this, but when Bobby Joe and the rest of the plague rats were running the concession stand, things were a little quicker. Here you go. The coffee's still hot. Don't burn yourself. <laughs> burn myself. Although, to be honest... When visiting the concession stand now, you don't have the mental shock when watching Rockford J and some of the other vault staff complete your order. Bobby Joe and his kin, they did love their milk duds, but all of that sugar made them twitch and scamper around in a most unsettling fashion. I'm not sure that it was the twitching of their poison quills that made me so nervous, but how their eyes would get all glassy. You could see their pupils dilate. Plus, they'd start whispering without moving their mouths. Ah, that hits the spot. Yeah, that is some pretty tasty coffee, if I do say so myself. Rockford J and I had to work on the machine, though. It started acting up. We found some hidden runes scratched on the underside of the heat exchanger. Oh, Bobby Joe. What a little scamp he was. Yeah, a little scamp projectionist. Before we could chisel it off, Re accidentally touched it. She mentioned it looked like the rune was bleeding. Oh my, no. Is she okay? Yeah, more or less. But she's only communicating by singing Japanese show tunes now. Rockford took her down to the infirmary to see if we needed to call in Father Brennan, or if this is just something that is going to work its way out of her system. She barely made contact with it, so I'm thinking that it'll work out okay. After Rockford came back, we chiseled off some of those runes, and the machine started right back up. Hmm. I will look at it myself after this evening's radio broadcast is finished. Why, speaking of... Look at the control panel, Victor. The recording light is on. Howdy, welcome to a brand new episode of the Saturday Frights Radio Show, dear listeners. Friends, thanks again for all of the fantastic feedback on the first two episodes of Season 3. We truly do appreciate those kind words, as well as you sharing the show with your friends. It would seem we're picking up some new listeners. For our third episode, we are yet again going to be discussing a film that successfully combines the science fiction genre with horror. Although, 
This film is not set in the stars, but on Earth, in Southern California, in fact. I'm referring, of course, to the 1984 cult classic, Night of the Comet. A picture that is a little lighter than the likes of Alien and Event Horizon. True, but it still falls into the horror category, Projectionist. In addition, the post-apocalyptic genre, too. To say nothing of the fact that it's actually fun at the same time. Hey, did you show this at the Haunted Drive-In back in the day? Of course I did, Serge. It was the first feature that weekend, with the Terminator, which was still packing in the patrons, as the second film. I'm going to presume that Night of the Comet was a film you caught at your local 62 drive-in, yes? I'm afraid not, my friend. Remember that my local drive-in was seasonal. So, when Night of the Comet was released on November 16th of 1984, it was already closed for the season. Until the spring of 85. I first saw Night of the Comet nearly a year after it had been originally released in theaters. On VHS. In fact, it was released on August 30th of 1985. The local video store had the poster hanging up for nearly a month. So when my father and I walked in and saw the box sitting on the new release shelf, we snatched it up and took it home, after stopping at the local pizza joint for dinner. We were pretty blown away by it, to say the least. So much so, that we rented it a second night, so we could show it to my grandparents. Being the weekend, with the store closed on Sunday, it meant that I was able to watch Night of the Comet multiple times in a row, before we took the tape back on Monday. They did not show it at your local movie theater, I take it. Oh, they certainly did. I guess my father and I never got a trailer for it, though, because we didn't catch it when it played, which is a shame. But we would continue to rent Night of the Comet quite a bit over the years, until we just flat out bought a copy of the movie. What about Night of the Comet would you say clicked with you, Victor? Well, that is a very good question. I am definitely a fan of post-apocalyptic and end-of-the-world films. I think that started thanks to catching Night of the Living Dead. Off the top of my head, projectionist, Planet of the Apes. Miracle Mile, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Road Warrior, In the Mouth of Madness, and The Mist are some of my favorites. Although Night of the Comet at the end of the day definitely doesn't reach the bleakness of some of those films I just mentioned. It's a little more like Shaun of the Dead in some ways. However, do you know what film sort of influenced Night of the Comet's director Tom Eberhardt? Most certainly. It was 1983's Valley Girl. Well, you're partially right, Projectionist. I mean, that film most definitely gave Eberhardt the idea of tackling an end-of-the-world scenario, but from the viewpoint of two valley girls. As well as the fact that two of the producers for Night of the Comet, Andrew Lane and Wayne Crawford, actually wrote Valley Girl. More on that in a bit. But I've heard that it was 1954's Target Earth that was responsible for the germ of the idea for Night of the Comet what Eberhardt has termed the empty city genre. You know, like with The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price, or even The Omega Man, the 1971 film adaptation of Richard Matheson's literary masterpiece, I Am Legend. I'm not ashamed to admit I was wholly unaware of that fact, Victor. I'm glad I could supply you with some new trivia, my friend. The success of Valley Girl would not just lead the Atlantic Entertainment Group to funding Night of the Comet, but as Eberhardt, who had been working, making PBS specials for the past decade, it offered him the opportunity to float some ideas by some teenage actors in said specials when beginning writing the screenplay. 
In John Kenneth Muir's 2007 843-page tome entitled Horror Films of the 1980s, Volume 1 and 2, the director stated, quote, I sat down with these girls that I was working with, having a lunch break. I asked them a simple question. What if you woke up one morning, got out of bed, and discovered that everybody else was gone? That you were the only people left? From that conversation with basically two 13-year-old valley girls, their immediate reaction was not to question where, where everybody went, why they were alone, nor to be afraid of anything. Their immediate reaction was all the stuff they could do. End quote. I'll be sure to include a link to Muir's book on the pop culture retrorama site for this podcast. It's a great read. Eberhardt goes on to mention that when asking those teenagers how they would handle the situation if they found themselves not exactly alone, that if there were some kind of monster roaming the city. To his shock, they said that since everyone else in the world had disappeared, they would arm themselves with the leftover firearms. The writer and director stumped them, however, when he made sure to point out that significant others would be gone too. That is what made these teenagers stop and begin to think what living in such a world would be like. The idea of the overwhelming loneliness finally beginning to creep in. While Eberhardt might have raised the ages of his two protagonists to 18 and 16, he felt that the film should be more of a grounded adventure with sci-fi origins, with, as we mentioned earlier, elements of horror. Which would be the zombies featured in Night of the Comet, dear listeners. Well, yeah, and even the collection of scientists who appeared to be the only ones who had concerns about the approaching comet. We will talk about that during the synopsis, though. For what it's worth, Tom Eberhardt has said Night of the Comet isn't a zombie film. How so, sir? We witness one of them feasting on the remains of a character, do we not? True, although I think that the director is saying that in regards to being compared to movies like Night of the Living Dead or Return of the Living Dead. I suppose his zombies are a little like the rage zombies from Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later. Although, this isn't a horde. After all, the comet appears to have managed to wipe out like 90% of life on Earth. Which I just realized, Projectionist, since we saw the red dust remains of the Belmont's family dog, that probably means livestock and such were also wiped out. The future might not be too rosy for the survivors after all. Or you were overthinking the situation and need to remind yourself that it's just a movie, you adult. I think I deserve that one. Yeah, I deserve that one. It is interesting to note that the original script, or it might have possibly been a placeholder on the shooting script, was entitled Teenage Comet Zombies, something that Kelly Maroney's character of Sam says over the radio in the film, by the way. Tom Eberhardt's main goal was also to create a film that managed to feature two very strong and smart female protagonists. I think he succeeded on that too, thanks to hiring Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney, both of whom had found success in daytime soap operas. Stewart was 24 when she landed the role of Regina Belmont, the slightly older sister of Samantha played by Maroney. Stewart had already appeared in 1980's Powderheads, as well as the sci-fi musical The Apple, before appearing in 1981's Nighthawks, as the sales girl who has the unfortunate encounter with the late and great Rutger Hauer, before going on to appear in the likes of Days of Our Lives, as Kayla Brady for 61 episodes. My grandmother was a huge fan of Days of Our Lives, and I have talked in the past about how I got hooked on the show as well when spending my summer with my grandparents. 
I am sure all of you listeners are aware of this, but Catherine Mary Stewart appeared in another film in 1984, just four months before Night of the Comet would hit theaters. Another important movie in my life, as a matter of fact. Projectionist, do you know what it was? Of course I do, dear boy. The Last Starfighter, where Catherine Mary Stewart starred along with Halloween 2's Lance Guest, as well as the music man's Robert Preston. You are totally correct, my friend. Now, Kelly Maroney was 23 when she secured the part of Samantha Belmont. Interestingly enough, I've read online that it was none other than Heather Langenkamp of A Nightmare on Elm Street fame that was originally being courted for the role. I think that Heather is an excellent actress, but Kelly Maroney totally owns the role of Sam. Playing the character is fun, and yet giving us a real glimpse later in the film of the emotional effect of realizing you were one of the last people on Earth. Maroney got her start in soap operas, appearing in 319 episodes of Ryan's Hope, before appearing in 1981's Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And in the following year, she would be cast in Slayground, before being cast in both the TV miniseries Celebrity and, of course, Night of the Comet in 84. I was mentioning Maroney's performance just a second ago. Did you know that her character in Night of the Comet was one of the inspirations for Joss Whedon when creating Buffy the Vampire Slayer? I cannot say I was aware of that fact. Well, as I understand it, Tom Eberhardt was able to get attention with his screenplay at the Atlantic Entertainment Group, which was also known as the Atlantic Releasing Corporation. The company was founded in 1974 by Michael Rosenblatt and Tom Coleman. They would release foreign and independent films in the beginning, like 1976's In Search of Bigfoot and The Odd Job in 78. With the success of Valley Girl, though, the company had $700,000 on their hands and they wanted to invest it as quick as possible. How come, Victor? As I've read online, I believe that it had something to do with bookkeeping projectionist. Obviously, with Valley Girl doing so well, they felt that investing in a film involving teenagers was a good idea. And Eberhardt's script certainly fit that bill, right? An issue, though, was that Tom really wanted to be in the director's chair for Night of the Comet. It was the reason, after all, he had written the script in the first place. It sounds like things were at a standstill for about a week before Atlantic decided to let Eberhardt direct the film, with Wayne Crawford and Andrew Lane as producers. After all, besides writing Valley Girl, the duo had acted as producers on that film as well. From reading online and even listening to the commentary on the Collector's Edition released by Shout Factory in 2013, it seems like the producers initially not only appeared resentful on being assigned Night of the Comet, but they didn't quite understand what Tom Eberhardt was trying to do with the film. I'm going to share a small excerpt from John Kenneth Muir's book again. This will be the last one, but I think it totally sums up what the director was going through while filming Night of the Comet. Eberhardt stated, Quote, I remember at one point, it was right when I was having Kelly drop the TV off the third floor of the mall on the bad guys, and she was smiling. Andy actually grabbed me, grabbed me by the arm, and pulled me while I was trying to get ready to shoot this thing. He pulled me to the side and was furious. He said, what are you doing? These girls look like they're having fun. It looks like a joke to them. It's the crisis of their life. They should be terrified. I said, Andy, this is fun. They are having fun on a certain level. End quote. Oh my, 
It doesn't appear like this was an enjoyable working experience for Tom Eberhardt. I think everything worked itself out, Projectionist, and I can tell you from both Muir's book, as well as that fantastic commentary on the Blu-ray, Eberhardt really praises both Crawford and Lane for their hard work with keeping everything going, especially while working on such a small budget. And it sounds like the producers have also praised Eberhardt in the film itself. And at the end of the day, with that budget of $700,000, the film raked in over $14 million at the box office over $3 million in the first weekend alone. And from what I've heard and read online, it was only in theaters for six weeks before it was pulled to make way for 2010, the year we make contact. The sequel, of course, to Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. I can at least offer that Night of the Comet did very well for itself when it hit home video. It was even released on CED video disc, to say nothing of being shown over and over on cable television. In fact, the popularity of Night of the Comet has continued to grow over the years. So much so that in 2018, Orion Pictures made an announcement that they had hired VHS Embody at Brighton Rocks, Roxanne Benjamin, to write the screenplay for a remake. And in 2019, Benjamin said she had delivered the script to Orion. So, who knows, projectionist? Perhaps in a couple of years we can cover this remake of Night of the Comet. No, thank you, dear boy. Okay, well before we start with the synopsis, I think we have to point out that Night of the Comet, while a low-budget affair, a drive-in movie as Eberhardt himself has described it, really works thanks to the cast that was assembled. Obviously, the bulk of the film rests on the shoulders of both Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney. But Robert Beltran, who plays Hector Gomez, truck driver turned hero, also is quite praiseworthy in his performance. Although he might be best known for his role as Commander Chakotay. These days, in 1984, he was probably identified the most from his role in the cult comedy Eating Raoul. In fact, his co-star from that very film, the esteemed Mary Warrenhoff, is in Night of the Comet as Dr. Audrey White. In addition, you also have the late and great character actor Jeffrey Lewis as Dr. Carter, who happens to be the leader of the scientists who head underground as the comet approaches. That includes Warnov's Dr. White. Alright friends, I think it's time to tackle the synopsis for Night of the Comet. If you've not had the pleasure of seeing the film for yourself yet, and don't wish to hear spoilers, pause the podcast and join us after you've checked it out. I need to grab a refill on my coffee here. I think the projectionist has a little something for your listening enjoyment. Most certainly. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be one of the last people on Earth? There's nobody. I mean, there's nobody. What would you do? The burden of civilization is on us. Fiction, isn't it? The legal drinking age is now 10, but... You will need ID. Let's be real. It's the night of the comet. The night the teenagers ruled the world. Night of the Comet. Rated PG-13. Friends, as we have mentioned with this third season of the podcast, I am really trying to pare down the synopsis for the film and TV shows we are covering. I still hope that we are giving you an overall synopsis, but not just wearing you down with all of the details, while still giving us a chance to provide interesting observations and behind-the-scene anecdotes. If only there were a way to minimize your intro to the synopsis. Hey, dear listeners. <laughs> 
As Night of the Comet begins, we learn that just 11 days before Christmas, a comet is going to be passing by the Earth, with our planet passing through the tail of it, one that last swung by the Earth about 65 million years ago. Yes! Around the time that the dinosaurs were wiped off the face of the Earth. Indeed. And while the majority of the Earth is celebrating the return of the comet by hosting watch parties and the like, it seems there are at least a few scientists, a research group, who feel this return signals something ominous, sealing themselves inside a large underground complex outside of Los Angeles. In the city, the festivities are in full swing, including at the historic El Rey Theater, where a midnight comet show is taking place, and Regina, Reggie, Belmont is doing her best to tune out the needs of the theater patrons and her manager's insistent demands that she walk the house. Regina Belmont is far too occupied with playing one of those electronic one-armed bandits that the youth are so captivated by these days. She's playing 1981's Tempest projectionist, and Reggie is good enough that she's filled the top 10 high scores, or so she thinks. There is a player with the initial of DMK that has taken one of the top spots, much to Reggie's dismay. I bring this up for two reasons. One is that Eberhardt, mentioned in that Blu-ray commentary, in his mind, this shows that Catherine Mary Stewart's character is a bit of a tomboy, and that she has a desire to be the best at all costs. And those initials, DMK, took on a life of their own. He just threw those initials into the script, and apparently everyone who read it felt that it must mean something. So, he decided to throw in something at the end of the film to appease everyone's concerns. After walking the auditorium, Reggie visits the theater's projection booth, where Larry, played by Breaking Bad's Michael Bowen, I guess we can say he's her boyfriend, is hatching a plan to make some quick money by allowing a film collector to make bootleg copies of an original print of It Came From Outer Space. The two will have to spend the evening inside the projection booth to ensure that Larry can get the film print back by 6 a.m. As you might imagine, Reggie would rather spend the evening checking out the comet instead of being cooped up inside the steel line projection booth. An important plot point there, dear listeners. Oh, it totally is. As Reggie is only 18 years old, a senior in high school in fact, she calls home, getting her younger sister Sam, who is trying her best to stay away from the revelers at their stepmom's comet watching party, watching the historic event on television. Reggie is hoping that Sam will cover for her, telling their stepmom Doris that she's actually on a class trip at the local observatory with her science class. Sam is less than enthusiastic with the cover story when she relays the message to Doris. Doris appears to have not the most pleasant relationship with her two stepdaughters. That is putting it mildly projectionist. While Sam and Reggie's father is out of the country, he's with the military, Doris is obviously in charge, and I hate to take sides, but it certainly seems like Doris is not the nicest person, and is quite probably fooling around with a neighbor while her husband is away. Things come to a head though when Sam begins to talk back to Doris, refusing to act as a hostess at the comet party, resulting in getting slapped in the face which Sam is happy to return, but then Doris grabs her and punches her stepdaughter in the face, sending her falling back over the couch and crashing against the TV set. For what it's worth, Eberhardt has mentioned that when the film originally played, this moment drew literal gasps from the audience, which is understandable, as Sam is supposed to be a 16-year-old girl, right? 
While Reggie and Larry spend the night in the projection booth, the comet passes overhead, and we see Doris and her probable boyfriend with the rest of the neighborhood excitedly watching as the sky begins to flash with lightning before it turns an angry red with purple streaks filling the sky. We also see that as Doris is watching, there appears to be something wrong, as she starts to scratch at her arms before cupping her hands over her eyes in pain. Good riddance to very bad rubbish. <laughs> Reggie is awoken the next morning by Larry angrily waiting at the door to the projection booth. The film hasn't been returned as agreed upon. His plan is to head out and pick it up himself, with Reggie waiting for him to return so he can be let back in, which gives the young woman plenty of time to clear DMK score off of the Tempest arcade cabinet in the lobby. But, unbeknownst to Reggie, as Larry reaches the back door, he hears something tapping against it. Assuming it's the person bringing the film back, he opens the door, only to get smashed in the head with a pipe wrench. We have just a second to see our first zombie, a former plumber judging by his attire. The zombie has milky white eyes that are slightly sunken to go with his chalky pale skin and what looks like horrible lesions on his cheeks and chin. The zombie takes a moment to bring the wrench down on the twitching form of Larry a second time, before dragging him out into the alley. Reggie finally decides to take a step outside, through the front doors of the theater, propping open one of the doors with an ash can. The morning sky is now disturbingly red-hued, although Reggie chalks it up to smog. It is a little harder to ignore the fact that strewn on the sidewalks and the streets themselves are clothes surrounded by piles of red dust. Yes? Calcium dust, as we will later learn. By the way, they used brick dust for the film. Although Reggie doesn't realize it, she's walking through the remains of the people of Los Angeles. It seems like if you hadn't spent the night of the comet in a location made of steel, you had yourself a real bad night. The ash can slides out and the front door shuts, locking Reggie out of the theater. Deciding to see if there's a way back in from the alleyway, she comes across a gruesome discovery. First, by finding the bloody pipe wrench, which is enough to alarm her. But then, she's confronted by the plumber zombie, who angrily demands that she comes to him. And although we do not get a very good look, it certainly was feasting on a part of Larry. Not that Reggie realizes this. You will remember that Regina Belmont's father is in the military and has apparently trained his daughters to take care of themselves. Absolutely. After applying a few kicks and leaving the zombie wishing he left well enough alone, Reggie takes Larry's bike and heads for home. It doesn't take long for Reggie to get scared, though. I'm not talking about just being shaken up by the attack moments ago. There is no one in the city. Cars are empty, having been left abandoned. In some cases, they are still running and playing music at stoplights. Everywhere she looks, she sees more piles of dust and clothing. By the way, Eberhardt revealed that this look of an empty city was all done with minimal interference to the citizens of Los Angeles. They shot early in the morning, and for scenes that required law enforcement to help them keep traffic back, they just shot the scene quickly so the traffic could resume normally. So, Reggie is beginning to put together what has happened with everyone. On arriving at her house, she is shocked and relieved to find that Sam is okay. In fact, her younger sister is making herself some cereal, getting ready to head out for cheerleading practice, totally unaware of what has taken place. It turns out that after being struck by Doris the previous night, Samantha Belmont felt that spending the evening in the steel garden shed was the best option. 
Hey, it saved her life. I think we should point out that Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney really do have a great chemistry together. A friendship that, as I understand it, that has kept them in touch throughout the years. Sam's older sister kind of begins to lose it, dragging Sam outside, showing the piles of dust and clothes that litter the neighborhood, including the remains of Doris. Reggie is angry at first at Sam for not listening to her, for not taking her seriously. Then, as she's trying to get her younger sister to listen to reason, Catherine Mary Stewart really just nails how scared her character truly is. This is all that's left of her, this is dust. Look, here's Chuck. Where are the kids? It's Saturday morning, where are the kids? It's that last line about it being Saturday morning and there are no kids playing, or really any noise at all, that even when I first saw Night of the Comet, kind of made my blood run cold. Sam is totally in a state of denial, and you can't really blame her. She's just 16, and this is some heavy stuff to accept. She just stares silently at Reggie while she closes the doors to the house and goes back to making her breakfast. Reggie tries to reach anyone on the phone, but to no avail. There's just no one left to answer the phones. However, the radio station that Sam has playing on her boombox is still broadcasting, and the girls can't help but stare in shock as the music is interrupted by a message from the radio jockey. Any port in a storm, as they say. The two teenagers immediately drive to the station, only to find there is actually no one present. <laughs> It is entirely automated, with a wheel-to-wheel -wheel system playing both the music and pre-recorded messages. Well, they're not entirely alone, my friend. It turns out that there was another who heard the radio broadcast and decided to investigate. Hector Gomez. The truck driver beat Reggie and Sam to the station and apparently had a run-in with some zombies himself, as we find out a little later. As he makes his presence known, he holds the two teenagers at gunpoint, briefly making them step into the light so he can see their eyes. Which Samantha Belmont does in the most sarcastic way possible. She's a true spitfire. Well, Hector explains he spent the previous evening in the cab of his semi-truck with a hitchhiker he happened to pick up. That morning, having to fuel up his rig, they stopped at a gas station, where he encountered a zombie feasting on a live cat. Let that horrid mental image sit in your mind for a second. Hector continues, saying that the hitchhiker he picked up rightfully freaked out at the sight and ran off but not very far, as he mentions he found her remains about 20 minutes later. This upsets Reggie, to say the least, because it has finally dawned on her what happened to Larry, and she excuses herself to get sick in the station's bathroom. Hector does his best to make amends with Reggie for, well, you know, holding them at gunpoint, while Sam busies herself with taking to the airwaves, even asking anyone listening to call the station's hotline. Here's the thing, to Sam's shock, someone actually calls in. We aren't privy to the actual phone call, but Sam excitedly rushes to alert her sister and Hector. 
explaining the person calling advised Sam to stay where they are, that a rescue team would be sent for them by helicopter the following day. In addition, filling her in on what we already know. The comet has turned anyone not in a steel structure to dust. Those who were partially exposed will quickly die from the effects of the comet, but will transform into zombies first. This call, of course, is from the scientists in the underground bunker, where things aren't exactly going smoothly. As they listen to Sam, Reggie, and Hector arguing over the air at the radio station, the head of the research operation, Dr. Carter, has decided to begin bringing survivors to the base, something that Dr. White is vehemently opposed to. We don't know why just yet, but we do get clues that it's not a good thing for the survivors. Hector, while spending the night at the station, explains to Reggie that he feels the need to leave in the morning. He will return, and hopefully before that helicopter shows up, but he needs to check his parents' house in San Diego. Obviously, he knows the odds are that they have been killed by the comet as well, but he has to check. Which gives Regina and Samantha Belmont plenty of time to blow off some steam, as it were by firing automatic weapons at some of the city's abandoned vehicles. Yeah, but it serves a point to show yet again that Reggie and Sam can handle themselves. Plus, with their father being military, it makes sense he would have taken them to a gun range. Actually, one of the funnier lines in the film occurs because of the weapons that Kelly and Catherine were using during the scene just kept jamming up. It happened so much that Eberhardt pulled Moroni aside and said if it occurred again in the next shot to just say, See, this is the problem with these things. Daddy would have gotten us Uzis. In a quieter moment, Sam points out rather angrily that Reggie has probably captured the attention of Hector, possibly the last man on Earth. But this anger stems from the fact she is finally coming to terms with the world as they knew it being over. And where Catherine Mary Stewart sold that earlier scene, it's here that Kelly Maroney just knocks it out of the park as she breaks down crying. And I can tell you, I get seriously teary-eyed watching this scene every single time. It was this new guy at school, Paul Morgan, and transferred from Taft, Junior. Oh, I don't hang around with Juniors much. I liked him. I mean, he was from Taft, but he was nice. Kathy said he was probably going to ask me out. <laughs> Kathy. She was flunking algebra and she was trying to figure out some way to keep her parents from finding out. <laughs> it's a really lucky break for her. See what I mean? You might be interested to know this scene was almost cut from the film. I've heard differing opinions on who actually saved the scene, but thank goodness they left it in there. Sam apparently is breaking out in a rash, and considering the stress she's experiencing, it isn't all that surprising. Projectionist, would you say this is the moment in the film where Reggie grows up, for the lack of a better word? Stops thinking about just herself. Yes, I think you are correct in that observation, Serge. To try and make Sam feel better, Reggie feels they need to go shopping. After all, the city is basically theirs for the taking. Plus, they do have those weapons if they happen to come across any pesky zombies. 
Meanwhile, Hector has arrived at his parents' house. Hearing Christmas music playing from within, he quickly enters. Sadly, much like the radio station, what he is hearing is the record player set on repeat. Reaching the end of the LP, it just starts back up. Hector quickly begins to gather up items, family photographs and the like, when he hears something at the front door. Opening it, he sees a zombified kid snarling at him, before he slams the door shut and begins to back away. Now, Robert Beltran really sells the comedy of the situation. The look on his face after he shuts that door is priceless. Kind of a, oh boy, this is happening look. The young man has no wish to hurt the boy, who begins to chase him through the house, even if he is a zombie. So Hector settles on escaping through an open window, and getting in his truck and getting the heck out of Dodge. All this goes down while Reggie and Sam are enjoying themselves at the local mall, trying on clothes and getting a chance to finally forget about the last couple of days and act like the teenagers they are. At least for a little while, dear listeners. For you see, that you're not the only ones in that shopping mall. That is true. The two are surprised when the lights are shut off and they hear over the store's speakers a mocking voice. Moments before they are assaulted by zombies. These, as we find out, are former stock boys who have decided they now own the store. Reggie is able to get her weapon though, and a shootout quickly ensues. Although, Sam is captured by Willie, the leader of these former store employees. Although, not all hope is lost, as Reggie is able to grab one of the stock boys, attempting a trade for Sam. But, Willie apparently is bug nuts as they come, as he willingly, to Reggie's dismay, guns down his friend so she has no leverage against him. Things are looking quite grim for Regina and Samantha Belmont. Although, unbeknownst to the two teenagers, the helicopter, the trio of scientists, and a security detail, including Dr. White, has arrived. Finding no one at the station, they begin to comb the city in search for them, with one of them theorizing where else would teenagers go but to the mall. The scientists want Regina and Samantha Belmont, as well as Hector Gomez, for nefarious reasons. Very nefarious reasons. You're getting ahead of yourself, projectionist. Reggie and Sam are taken to the basement of the store, wrapped in chains and seated back to back. Willie, who is played by Ivan E. Roth of Night of the Creeps and Tales from the Crypt fame, decides to play a game he calls Scary Noises, which is Russian Roulette. And you can really feel the fear with how Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney play this scene. They really pull off that their characters realize they are moments away from dying. After playing with his captives, pulling the trigger over and over and over again until the bullet is finally in the chamber, Samantha and Regina Belmont close their eyes as Willie cocks the gun and begins to squeeze the trigger for the final time before being gunned down in a hail of machine gun fire along with his remaining stock boys, as the security detail and the scientist arrive to seemingly save the day. In the next scene, we get to see Reggie and Sam laughing, standing by the waiting helicopter, comparing clothes they've managed to take with them from the nightmare at the store, with one of the scientists remarking offhandedly that it's ironic that of all the great minds in the world, it would be two valley girls who survived the comet. Well, in the eyes of these scientists, they only believe that Regina Belmont has managed to escape the effects of the comet, as they see Samantha scratching at her neck. 
The scientists send Reggie off, saying that Samantha should wait with two of the scientists for Hector, but there is a reason they are separating them. Dr. White chats with Sam in the department store, giving her a shot to euthanize her. At least, that is what her associate Oscar believes. In truth, as we find out later, it is just a sedative. Allowing Dr. White, who has decided this is a one-way trip, to pull a gun and shoot Oscar dead. You see, there was a brief scene earlier demonstrating that those in the underground research base are infected. They failed to close the ventilation system. They are, in fact, intending to bring the survivors back to try and create a serum using uninfected blood. In the original script, Sam was actually killed in this scene. She was euthanized. I think I understand Eberhardt's thinking on this. It's a horror movie, and bad things happen in horror movies. It apparently was his wife that really drove home the point that if Sam died, it would ruin the movie. A very astute observation. Absolutely. It would have destroyed all of the fun of the film, to say the least. Hector shows up back at the radio station after apparently helping himself to a new automobile. Not to find Reggie or Sam, but Dr. White, who clues Hector into what the research group are planning to do with the survivors. She also euthanizes herself. I assume because she doesn't want to become a zombie. In fact, this scene between Hector and Dr. White was totally written by Mary Warrenov. The good doctor, as she passes away, reveals that in 36 hours, the effects of the comet will have run their course, wiping out any of the remaining infected. Reggie is questioned by Dr. Carter when she reaches the underground base, if she has any illnesses, etc. While this is going on, two medical technicians are trying to remember how much blood they're supposed to collect from the two survivors strapped to the gurneys. This is to show the infected are losing the ability to reason, but also to let us know the plan is to render the survivors brain dead and keep them alive to harvest blood, in the hopes of finding a cure. Even more horrifying is that plan includes the two young children we saw being brought to the base before Reggie. Speaking of Regina Belmont, she is beginning to tire of the methodical questioning by Dr. Carter. Angrily demanding to know when her younger sister is going to arrive. Cruelly, in a matter-of-fact tone, Dr. Carter informs her that Samantha is dead. Dr. Carter leaves to handle more important matters, like pulling the wings off of flies or something, which allows Reggie to make an escape, knocking out one of the scientists and trying to find an exit. What she finds first is the blood harvest operation in effect, before being recaptured. Meanwhile, Hector has arrived at the base. It turns out Dr. White left detailed instructions for Hector on how to get to the base, as well as the fact that Sam is sleeping it off back at the store. The duo overtake a guard at the base, and Hector begins to create some havoc, temporarily cutting off the power to the base, as well as leaving a nasty surprise under some of the research group vehicles. A little dynamite primed to go off if they're started. The confusion as the lights go off give Hector and Sam enough time to infiltrate the base itself, rescuing Reggie as well as the two children, making their escape to Hector's vehicle, although in hot pursuit by Dr. Carter and the security team of the base. Dr. Carter has all but fully turned into a zombie by the time he piles into one of the vehicles to give chase. Turning the key, it explodes in a massive fireball, and presumably 
takes out the other vehicles as well. As you said earlier, Projectionist, good riddance to bad rubbish. If what Dr. White said is correct, even those still deep in the underground base only have 36 hours before they will perish from the effects of being exposed to the comet. As Reggie, Hector, Sam, and the kids drive away into the night, back to LA, the scene switches to a massive thunderstorm, and we see the red dust and all the clothes start to wash away into the sewers, leaving a nice and clean city behind for the survivors. It would appear that Reggie and Hector have become an item, along with Sam calling themselves Aunt Reggie, Aunt Sam, and Uncle Hector, beginning the first steps of rebuilding a society, which includes following the rules of traffic and waiting for the signal light. This is something that is driving Sam crazy, as they are the only survivors in the city. She boldly walks out into the middle of the street and is almost struck by a speeding sports car. As the driver hits the brakes and makes a U-turn to apologize, Sam is delighted to find that Hector is apparently not the only male left. Perhaps, to Reggie's dismay, her younger sister willingly accepts a ride from this young man, whose name turns out to be Danny Mason Keener. And with the promise to be back before midnight, and the future looking bright for the survivors, Danny and Sam drive off. And of course, we can see that his license plate reads DMK. <laughs> and now we know who beat Reggie's high score on Tempest. And that wraps up what I'm sure was an overly long synopsis for Night of the Comet. In my personal opinion, it is just a fun sci-fi horror film you can watch and enjoy anytime you want. The performances by the trio of main actors is not only what helps to sell it, but also elevates it from what could have been a forgettable B-picture in the wrong hands. In fact, from a 1985 review of the picture by none other than Neil Gaiman, he said of the film that it was, quote, one of the most amusing, witty, imaginative, and thought-provoking films I've seen that was made with no budget and is also cheap exploitation. End quote. And friends, I think that wraps up our episode on Night of the Comet. As always, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen to the show, and we hope you are enjoying Season 3 so far. The music you heard at the beginning and ending of our podcast was provided by Peachy. My co-host, The Projectionist, has his own Facebook page, Projectionist Haunted Drive-In. He manages to share interesting trivia on films on a daily basis, or sometimes just vintage movie posters and behind-the-scenes photographs of some of your favorite films. As always, I want to thank Rockford J for putting up with the abuse of the projectionist on a nearly daily basis. I couldn't keep a lid on the vault without his hard work. You can find him sharing his own love of the horror genre every single day on the Saturday Frights Facebook page. As for myself, you can still find me posting on not just the Saturday Frights page, but the Diary of an Arcade Employee page, and of course, the Pop Culture Retrorama site too. Saturday Frights has an Instagram account, by the way. If you want to check it out, you can find it. It's simply Saturday underscore Frights. If you'd like to contact me with suggestions for future episodes, you can reach me at VicSagePopCulture at gmail.com. For all things pop culture and retro related, feel free to visit us at the Pop Culture Retrorama site. Generally, we have something of interest to share a couple times a day. Of course, we owe a great deal of gratitude to the Retroist, not just for originally hosting the podcast, but for allowing us for nearly 10 years to share our love of all things retro. If you like the show, consider subscribing and giving us a rating over on iTunes. Our past catalog of episodes are slowly coming back online, but you can still listen to the entire collection over on the Internet Archive. 
We are also available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. As we end the show, why not listen to a clip from the subject we will be discussing next week? But I remember the cool air. I remember it with a special horror. An icy draft that still whistles across half a century. This has been a Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Saturday Frights podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by any of the businesses and individuals that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only, and are not intended to infringe. You wouldn't believe what we want from you. In your worst nightmare, you wouldn't believe.